The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Easing the Burden of Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Progress in Understanding and Addressing its Pathophysiology. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash BQR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you for coming this evening. My name is Daniel Jacoby. I'm an associate professor of internal medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. And I'm happy to be here tonight uh, hosting Drs. Carolyn Ho and Ted Abraham to my left. Together we'll be talking about easing the burden of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, progress in understanding and addressing its pathophysiology. So let me start with an introduction. Uh, many of you are familiar with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's why you're here. Uh, this conference is a conference for heart failure specialists. And yet, um, the burden of disease uh, is something that we sometimes underappreciate, and it requires a high index of suspicion. Um, I find myself sometimes a little bit embarrassed about thinking about my past in times when I was less involved in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and thinking about how I may have missed it. Uh, knowing that I didn't diagnose hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for the first couple of years of my career uh, when I wasn't really focused on it. It's really the most common inherited cardiac disease and uh, as frequent as one in 200. And it has autosomal dominant inheritance in, case, in many cases, although we see a lot of sporadic HCM and there are some interesting forms of inheritance outside of that. The prevalence in the U.S. is about 750,000 estimated, and there's probably at least 650,000 people undiagnosed, which means that about 85 or 86 percent of people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy don't even know that that's what they have. It's highly variable in clinical course. Um, its treatment is generally um, difficult to... Uh, to pursue if you don't know that the person has the diagnosis, and it's especially under-recognized and under-treated in women and ethnic minorities. It's a theme that we should be embarrassed about in medicine. Um, we need uh, strong efforts to correct this in all areas of medicine, and it's true here as well. Leading cause of sudden death in young athletes, which many people are aware of, and delayed diagnosis is common among patients, and I can tell you my experience, I follow about 750 hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, and um, I get a lot of patients telling me that they sort of are relieved to get the diagnosis because they've known that something's been wrong for years and they've been trying to figure it out and doctors maybe have or haven't been able to sort of identify it. And I think one of the themes of tonight is that heart failure is a common and underrecognized cause of morbidity and mortality in adults with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I would say this is the Heart Failure Society of America um, and uh, with pioneering work done um, by Dr. Ho and others, which will be presented tonight, um, we really can see the burden of that. Major clinical findings are protean, um, dyspnea, palpitation, syncope. They're not that different from other types of heart failure. The outflow murmur is sometimes present in those with obstruction, as you all know. Gallops are sometimes heard. And even these stark T-wave abnormalities that you see on this EKG can be missed. I know um, that I've seen patients who've been handed their EKG by their physician and told, this is just your EKG, don't worry about it, but without the diagnosis to go along with that. Um, the outlook is variable. 
um, we know that some patients with HCM do very well with minimal intervention, but there are a large number of HCM patients, and we'll get to this later in the presentation, who have significant outcomes. And stroke and sudden death are um, outcomes that are very unfortunate. Stroke more common than sudden death, but significant and heart failure very, very common. So the quality of life and the mortality issues are both really important. And exertional dyspnea, fatigue, arrhythmias, heart failure, stroke, and sudden death are all part of this. And the barriers to better management are significant. The ACC surveyed 185 practicing members, and they found that people wished for um, improved uh, communication, improved guidelines, uh, improved access to genetics, and so on. I want to just quickly introduce our patients, then I'll hand the talk over. Uh, we'll be getting to these cases later in the talk, but these are two patients of mine, LS and TJ, and I'll give you the details of those when we get round to them, and I'll look forward to seeing if we can apply some of the principles discussed tonight to these two cases. Thank you. Dr. Abraham? Thank you, uh, Dr. Jacoby. Um, pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me here. So let's start off with the clinical features of HCM that uh, Dr. Jacoby touched on. This is from my old cohort uh, in Baltimore. You can see that on the left-hand side, the primary patient characteristics of presentation are dyspnea. Hypertension, obviously, is not a clinical presentation, but it's often associated in our cohort as well. Mid-40s, in most larger published data, it's somewhere between 30 and 40% of the HCM cohort. Angina, family history, syncope, and, and a few of them also have coronary disease. ECG features, as uh, Dr. Jacoby just elucidated, repolarization abnormalities, T-wave inversion, and a whole host of other uh, abnormalities. However, true left ventricular hypertrophy by various criteria form less than a third uh, of this population. But more importantly, about 18 to 20% of patients had a completely normal uh, ECG. HCM um, is thought to increase the energy use in the heart. So in a normal heart, and uh, Dr. Ho is going to go over this in more detail uh, in her presentation, the normal heart, uh, as far as excitation-contraction coupling, uses energy efficiently. In non-obstructive HCM, there are additional actin-myosin cross-bridges, which means the heart is working harder than normal, and this excess work results in uh, damage to the heart muscle over time. In obstructive HCM, these extra cross bridges, again, very similar to the non-obstructive variant, work harder. But because of the obstruction, they actually maybe uh, at under stress even more than a non-obstructive heart. And both these, over time, uh, can result in uh, damage to the heart muscle or myopathy. The ACC HA guidelines uh, elaborate on certain features that might diagnose HCM. F suspicions are raised when you have a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or cardiomyopathy, a cardiac event, uh, a heart murmur on exam, abnormal ECG, remember that a, a, a few of them will not have an abnormal ECG, and of course, abnormal imaging, primarily echocardiography. And as the guidelines suggest, the primary means of uh, evaluation are a three-generation family history, a comprehensive physical exam, which is how you would find the murmur, especially with certain maneuvers, squat and stand or Valsalva, a 12 ECG, a transthoracic echo also with a Valsalva with or without other provocative maneuvers, exercise echocardiography, especially if you find that there are features of HCM and the gradient is less than 30 or less than 50, 
doing exercise might be able to provoke a gradient. And lastly, if the echoes, uh, echo is not conclusive or if you want uh, to add a layer of investigation while determining sudden cardiac death risk, cardiac MRI might be useful. And lastly, uh, genetic testing that Dr. Uh, Ho will go into some details on. Here are some uh, images, uh, echo images. So here is a classic obstructive HCM, thickened septum. Again, the magic number per the guidelines is 1.5 centimeters or 15 millimeters. And in this um, patient here, you can see a SAM, that is a longer mitral leaflet beyond the coaptation point that moves over, bends over, and touches the septum in peak systole. Again, often confused and called prolapse in many circles, but this is SAM. This is a zoomed-in view of the same patient. You see the septum here. You see the valve coapting and then bending over here. This is a patient with a very thick septum, not, no SAM, no valvular SAM, but you can look, if you look deeper or more distally the, at the pap muscle level or distal cords, you can see that the, the LV is narrowing there. This is someone with, with HCM, was gene positive. The, the septum was only 13 millimeters, and you can see there is no SAM and uh, not much of hypertrophy. In fact, if they were not gene positive, they would not meet guidelines criteria for a diagnosis of HCM. Here's yet another case of severe septal hypertrophy, no classic SAM or cordial SAM, but again, papillary muscle, at the pap muscle level, there's narrowing. This is just a very dramatic echo of a 22-year-old with a four or beyond four-centimeter septum, and the interesting part is this sort of starry sky appearance that you get when you give contrast because of all these dilated coronaries and septal perforators. Um, but again, non-obstructive, no SAM, but a very, very thick septum. This last image here is an MRI of a patient who had monomorphic VT while raising the toast at his nephew's wedding, got into the emergency room, found to be in monomorphic VT, shocked, and his troponin was high. His EKG looked like an MI, so they did a cath and actually angioplastied a vessel. Uh, I don't know if he had angioplasty stenosis, but like all good interventionalists, they went ahead and angioplastied him. And this was supposed to be a post-MI echo uh, or MRI. We got an echo first, but we're showing the MRI, which is more dramatic. You can see significant mid-ventricular hypertrophy, thinned out, scarred apex, and a uh, relatively large thrombus sitting in the apex. They, they did have an ICD placed uh, and subsequently had um, a apical aneurysm resection, thrombectomy, uh, sewed these two, uh, did myectomies on both sides, and uh, sewed the normal margins of the myocardium together with a pericardial patch, and it's now been nine years, and he's doing really well. So HCM is not the only cardiomyopathy that presents with hypertrophy, and this is the wide spectrum. On one side, on the left-hand side, there is the hypertrophic phenotype. You have, uh, they meet the max wall thickness criteria, and then you have other conditions like amyloid and Fabry's or glycogen storage diseases that might end up within the hypertrophic phenotype, but also could span the spectrum and go over to the right-hand side, which is where they're a primary restrictive cardiomyopathy. Conversely, there might be HCM phenotypes that present without the full-blown hypertrophy, milder variants of uh, milder varieties of hypertrophy, but with restrictive physiologies. So it's very important to try to separate these uh, entities that are phenocopies of HCM. Clinically, there are multiple opportunities for diagnostic uh, pitfalls or misses. 
athletic or exercise-induced asthma, especially in younger adults, often HCM and exercise-induced shortness of breath in the setting of HCM mimics exercise-induced asthma, and I've found at least 20 to 30% of our patients being told that they had exercise-induced asthma in middle school and high school age. Mitral valve prolapse, very often because of the murmur, if you don't do the additional maneuvers to try to separate prolapse from, from uh, obstructive HCM, you might, uh, you might misdiagnose HCM as mitral valve prolapse. And also, further on with echo, if you're not used to seeing SAM, very often you see something going on with the mitral valve, and that's often diagnosed as mitral valve prolapse. Very often, especially again in the younger age group, if they ha do present with a murmur, it's often written off as an innocent murmur. You're going to grow out of it. Nothing needs to be done. Let's just monitor you in a few years. But this could be obstructive HCM. Panic attacks present with the same constellation of symptoms that folks with HCM might have, especially in the setting of HCM-related arrhythmias. Depression, some of these vague symptoms, fatigue, brain fog. Again, it could be mistaken as depression. And lastly, cardiac arrest. Sometimes the very first presentation a patient might have could be cardiac arrest or someone in the family. This morning I had my clinic. The first gentleman I saw, the reason he got diagnosed when his daughter dropped dead um, uh, from HCM, was only found on autopsy, and then the rest of his family has been screened, and one, one other daughter has been found to have HCM, and the father uh, has HCM. Again, unfortunate, but your first or their first presentation could be sudden death. Here are the ACC guidelines on treatment. Let's start uh, on the left-hand side. Non-obstructive HCM with a preserved ejection fraction. First line would be beta blockers or calcium blockers. If they have fluid retention, diuretics. And in select cases, if it's mainly apical myectomy, um, uh, I'm sorry, apical hypertrophy, uh, an apical myectomy might be useful. If you're not obstructive and have a more myopathic picture with an EF that has dropped below the 50% uh, the mark, then the standard guideline-directed uh, heart failure therapies uh, would be operative. We would discontinue uh, other negative inotropic agents, uh, continue beta blockers, obviously, and then consider ICD. And in select patients, they might need a CRT. And if all fails or they continue to get worse, uh, the, these patients might deserve or warrant a heart transplant. On the obstructive side, which is on the extreme right there, beta blockers or calcium blockers, especially if they're intolerant of beta blockers, are first line. You avoid anything that reduces preload, diuretics, or reduce, reduces afterload, because with that math, LV pressure minus the aortic pressure, the afterload, your gradients are going to go up in those situations. Second line therapies to add an agent such as disoparamide, and if those fail, uh, at least the current guidelines would state that you would proceed with non-medical septal reduction, either with an ablation or a myectomy. This is, so we've settled the plumbing issue, the magic number being 30, uh, to, to uh, define someone as obstructive or non-obstructive. This is risk assessment for the electrical component and sudden death. If you've had an event, of course, you're going to get an ICD. If you've not had an event, and this is primary prevention, family history, massive LVH, three centimeters is the cutoff, Syncope that you cannot explain and sounds historically that it could be a cardiac arrhythmia, apical aneurysm, and a low EF. That's a two-way indication. Non-sustained VT on ambulatory ECG monitor. If that's present, especially in children, yes. If none of these are present and you have extensive LGE on uh, magnetic resonance imaging, 15, 20% or more of LV mass, 
an ICD may be con considered. If all these are not present, then the ICD is not indicated. This is how HCM can progress, and this is some of what we've already talked about. Sudden death, and you want an ICD there. Progressive, and, and if they have obstruction, then uh, a surgical or non-medical septal reduction might be useful. Advanced heart failure, heart failure therapies and transplant. AFib and stroke, AFib, 20% of HCM patients will present with AFib, the most common complication. And of course, drugs for AFib ablation and chronic anticoagulation. This last slide before I transition over to Dr. Ho is a slide from Dr. Ho's work uh, with the SHARE Registry, and it's a very informative slide and sets the stage for the discussion that, that Dr. Ho is going to bring into this, um, uh, pre uh, into this uh, symposium, which is if you look at age of onset or age of detection of HCM, those that were detected with HCM less than 40 years of age, and, and you can see that it starts around 10 on the graph, have a long period of disease, but they also have the most complications of the disease, and, and some of them are listed over there, ventricular arrhythmias, heart failure, AFib, and there were more, I believe, stroke uh, and death uh, were also included. So you can see that the longer you have HCM diagnosed, the more chance that you will have a complication. If you're diagnosed in the mid-40s, in the 40s to 60s range, then you have less complications, and there's a steeper curve to get to that level. Of course, this was censored at age 70. And then if you are diagnosed in your 60s, you have the least rate uh, of complications. So although that's bad news in one sense, if you're diagnosed early, the bad news is you have a high rate of complication. The good news, the silver lining here might be what Dr. Ho would touch on, which is the opportunity to institute disease-modifying therapies, and if you put that in well in advance, in maybe t uh, decades in advance of where these complications peak in the fifth, sixth, and seventh decade, or the fifth and sixth decade, maybe you can alter the slope of that curve. Thank you very much. Great. Well, thank you very much, um, and good evening to everybody. It's nice to finally be back in person um, and together for uh, a, a meeting. So thanks to uh, Dan and Peerview and HFSA for organizing this and inviting me. So the families, uh, there were, it's long been recognized that um, HCM runs in families, suggesting that there's um, a genetic underpinning for its etiology. And by studying families with HCM back in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, John and Cricket Simon and Bill McKenna and a, and a bunch of other people were able to do linkage analysis comparing the DNA of people that had HCM in the family to the DNA of relatives that did not have HCM. And in that manner, they were able to establish the paradigm that HCM is a disease of the sarcomere caused by autosomally dominantly um, acting uh, pathogenic variants in the different genes that encode the sarcomere apparatus. Um, and variation in myosin binding protein C and myosin heavy chain are most common and collectively account for over 80% of genetic HCM. Uh, variation in troponin I and troponin T um, together account for about 10% of disease. And then we have the balance um, accounted by rare variation in the myosin light chains and the um, tropomyosin and actin. Genetic testing for HCM has been clinically available for almost 20 years, since about 2004. And if you look at all comers with a clinical diagnosis of HCM who are referred for uh, genetic testing, about a third of the time you'll have positive results, meaning finding a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. Um, if there's a family history of HCM, that of course increases the a priori likelihood that there's genetic disease um, present, and over 60% of the time you'll have positive genetic testing. Um, results. 
Um, and in the case of HCM genetic testing, more is not better. Um, typically, uh, you will use a uh, genetic testing panel that's uh, specifically tailored and arrayed with genes that have been implicated in causing HCM. Um, the, the panel size now um, is about 30 genes, but most of the money is in the eight core sarcomeric genes. And uh, efforts to use larger panels with more genes, or even looking at the whole genome, have not led to an increase in clinically actionable yield. You'll get a lot more variance of uncertain significance, but not um, necessarily actionable pathogenic or, path or likely pathogenic variants. And so there are a number of different reasons to think about performing genetic testing. From the standpoint of the provider or the patient, um, genetic testing can really help to define the genetic etiology of disease. It can sometimes clarify ambiguous diagnoses because distinct diseases may share a common low-resolution uh, phenotype, like left ventricular hypertrophy or systolic dysfunction, but have different underlying mechanisms, uh, disease courses, treatment um, uh, strategies, or implications for the family. Probably the most practical uh, use of genetic testing in the current day is to guide family management, because genetic testing can help to identify at-risk relatives in a definitive manner. So if a, um, a high-confidence pathogenic variant is identified in um, a, a relative that has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, predictive testing can be done on um, all the rest of the family to determine, yes or no, is that pathogenic variant present or absent? And if that variant is present, then that family member is at risk for developing disease and should be followed appropriately. Um, but if the variant is absent, that individual is really not at increased risk, and they can be largely dismissed from longitudinal follow-up um, with uh, you know, the uh, caution to return for uh, evaluation of any um, clinical change emerges. And so that way, you want to think about genetic testing as really testing the family, just, not just a single individual. And then finally, genetic testing and better understanding of the um, genetic and molecular basis of disease helps to provide us with the knowledge that we need to ch change clinical paradigms. It allows us to identify at-risk individuals before the onset of clinical disease and to develop treatments that can actually change the natural history based on an improved understanding of fundamental disease biology. And with this, we've been able to um, perform uh, natural history studies on large cohorts using the SHARE registry, which is a multi-center um, collaborative uh, consortium where we've been able to amass over 9,000 um, HCM patients um, uh, with about 30,000 patient years of follow-up. And by studying them, we've been able to confirm that indeed genotype matters. Um, patients with sarcomeric HCM have worse outcomes than patients with non-sarcomeric HCM. So if you look at this Kaplan-Meier survival curve, you'll see that um, sarcomeric HCM, sarc positive, and green, um, these patients have um, pathogenic or likely pathogenic uh, sarcomeric variants, and they have earlier onset and more prevalent adverse outcomes. And here we're looking at this big overall composite outcomes. Um, in contrast to SARC negative patients or non-sarcomeric HCM, so these are HCM patients where genetic testing was performed, but no uh, clinically relevant variant was identified. So that holds true for this overall composite outcome, as well as for essentially all the individual components of the uh, composite outcomes, with hazard ratios in the two to three range um, uh, of higher risk for sarcomeric HCM, and the highest risk um, being associated with the need for transplant or VAD with a hazard ratio of 4.6. And so now here's a case to help us think through about how genetic testing um, could be used in clinical practice. 
So here's the patient that initially saw us in clinic. He's a um, uh, otherwise healthy 32-year-old um, that was asymptomatic, but his PCP heard a murmur, um, got an echo, and um, made the diagnosis of HCM. And in taking a family history from him, we learned that his um, brother, um, 26 years old, had been told that he had athlete's heart, although he wasn't really particularly athletic. Um, their father um, died of what they, you know, the family um, believed to be an MI at age 38. But in fact, he was a lawyer. He was you know, in good health. He was arguing a case in court and collapsed and could not be resuscitated. And then their paternal uncle, um, also died at a young age, at 30. He was in a car accident. He, it was the like middle of the day. He was the driver of a car and like, drove off the road into a tree and unfortunately was killed. So should genetic testing be performed? And if so, how? So in thinking about um, HCM, because it's oftentimes familial, all of the um, other uh, individuals in the family are at risk for developing disease, and our current guidelines suggest that we start um, with um, longitudinal family screening and first-degree relatives. That's all individuals that are directly related to the um, family proband, the initial family member to be diagnosed with HCM, so it would be siblings, children, and parents. And with the goal of family screening um, being to identify relatives with unrecognized HCM and to follow those who currently appear healthy but are at risk for disease development and hopefully to minimize complications and assess for um, risk of sudden death. This typically consists of doing a physical exam, um, performing an echo or other types of cardiac imaging, um, and an EKG. And because there's age-dependent penetrance, um, you, it's very un unusual, although not um, unheard of, to have you know, babies or very young children have HCM. Um, disease usually develops in uh, adolescence or early adulthood. Um, you need to have serial screening. Um, one uh, normal-appearing screening, or, uh, particularly in a young individual, um, does not uh, mean that that person will not develop HCM in their lifetime. And so the 2020 um, HCM guidelines suggest that um, children in adolescence and families that have uh, proven genetic um, HCM or early onset disease should be um, screened at the time of family diagnosis um, and with screening repeated every one to two years. Otherwise, children and adolescents should be um, screened after family diagnosis and before puberty and uh, surveyed every two to three years, and adults should be screened at the time of family diagnosis um, and uh, followed every three to five years. So our patient asks, um, you know, is there a way to be more certain about what will happen to his children? And this is where um, genetic testing can really um, help make a difference. So he underwent um, diagnostic genetic testing with the HCM uh, panel and was found to have a pathogenic variant in myosin heavy chain. Um, his uh, siblings and his children underwent predictive testing, and it turned out that his sister did not carry the variant, on, in his, but his brother and one of his two children did. So this helps to clarify the ambiguous diagnoses. Um, we can say that his um, brother has HCM, not athlete's heart, and we are uh, pretty suspicious that both his father and his uh, paternal uncle likely had HCM-associated um, sudden death. Um, both you know, he and his, his brother got swept into clinical care, and they both decided that they would have an ICD implanted on the basis of this um, worrisome family history. Um, and it also allows us to focus longitudinal family follow-up. Instead of having seven um, relatives that were possibly at risk, we can, we're down to just one um, family member that's definitively at risk by virtue of having inherited the pathogenic variant.
So those who are, um, did not inherit the variant or are genotype negative can be largely reassured that they're not at risk for developing HCM. Um, their offspring are not at risk. We don't even have to genotype his um, sister's kids because um, she, she doesn't have the variant to pass on to them. And longitudinal clinical follow-up is not required, although they should be um, evaluated if there's clinical change. For those that have inherited the um, pathogenic variant, they are at risk for developing HCM. There's a 50% um, risk of transmission to each of their offspring, and they should have longitudinal follow-up. And if um, genetic testing is negative in the family, um, then cascade clinical screening is um, the default for first-degree relatives. And switching gears a little bit, um, elucidating the genetic and molecular basis of disease can also help to inspire new approaches um, to treatment. In HCM, there are too many connections or cross bridges between actin and myosin proteins, which increases the energy used by the heart and makes it harder for the muscle to relax. Mava Campton targets the underlying mechanism of HCM by inhibiting and therefore reducing the number of actin-myosin cross bridges. And so this is where um, the, this fundamental uh, understanding comes into play. So in the normal sarcomere, there's highly regulated, highly coordinated interaction between the myosin thick filament and the actin thin filament, with the myosin head attaching and detaching from the thin filament as the power stroke is engaged um, and as it relaxes for um, diastole. So in the normal situation, there's normal contractility and effective relaxation. But with HCM, one hypothesis is that there are too many um, myosin heads that are engaged with the actin-thin filament at any single time. And that leads to hypercontractility, impaired relaxation, and altered myocardial energetics that are hallmarks of um, HCM pathophysiology. So Mavicampton is um, the first um, in class targeted inhibitor of cardiac myosin. It's, um, it, it targets that first rate-limiting step of, um, of uh, and inhibits the ATPase that um, is needed to allow myosin to initially interact with actin. And so it reduces the number of myosin-actin crossbridges and therefore helps to decrease the excessive contractility characteristic of HCM. So if you have an HCM sarcomere that is um, exposed to mavicamptin, um, there you can see attenuated hypercontractility, um, and in the laboratory, improved compl uh, compliance and improved energetics. So this has led to a, a series of clinical trials looking at Mavicampton in both obstructive and non-obstructive symptomatic HCM. So we'll focus a little bit on the Explorer HCM trial, which is the, um, uh, um, the result of the phase one, phase two, and now the pivotal Explorer trial um, looking at Mavicampton as treatment for symptomatic obstructive HCM. And so in this trial, 251 individuals were randomized, 123 to Mavicampton and 128 to placebo, and um, randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to placebo or Mavicampton in um, uh, 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 several different, uh, in, uh, with the ability to up-titrate dosing. Um, they were treated for 30 weeks. Um, in, in, in terms of the baseline characteristics, you can see that um, the trial population is largely representative of um, the general HCM population. The mean age was of 58 and a half. Um, 
about 40% uh, were female. Um, because they were symptomatic and obstructive, the majority were on some background therapy, the um, um, uh, most commonly beta blockers. Uh, patients had to be either NYHA class two or three to qualify, and you can see that the majority were NYHA class two. And they had a peak VO2 of about 19 at baseline. So the primary endpoint um, for Explorer was more of a functional endpoint. Um, clinical events are not um, very common or very frequent with, um, with HCM, so looking at um, major adverse cardiovascular events or even, their heart, or even heart failure or hospitalizations um, is uh, not that frequently seen. It would be very difficult to power a study um, based on those events. So the primary endpoint in Explorer um, was to see if a drug would be associated with either a, at least a 1.5 mil per kg per minute increase in peak VO2 and at least a one class improvement in NYHA class, or at least a three mil per kg per minute increase in peak VO2 with no worsening of NYHA class. And as a secondary endpoint, there was a more um, uh, ambitious goal of having both at least a three mil per kg per minute increase in peak VO2 and um, at least a one class improvement in NYHA class. And so Explore was positive um, uh, with 37% of those on Mavicamptin, but 17% of those on placebo achieving the primary endpoint with between group difference of 19.4 and a um, significant p-value. Additionally, 20% of those on Mavicamptin, but only 8% of those on placebo achieved this more ambitious endpoint of um, both a three mil per kg per minute increase in peak VO2 and at least um, a one-class improvement in NYJ. Um, the, the therapy seemed to be uh, safe and well-tolerated um, with a similar number of um, adverse events in um, placebo and mavicantin. And in terms of its mechanism of action, we ex uh, because of the uh, attenuation of contractility, we expect um, LVOT gradient to um, uh, to fall. And indeed, you can see that um, looking at both resting and post-exercise LVOT gradient, um, there was a substantial and sustained um, decrease in gradient on individuals with, um, uh, treated with Mavicamptin versus placebo. And there was um, almost a, a 40 uh, millimeter mercury decrease in the post-exercise uh, gradient in those on Mavicamptin. So this is you know, really quite a substantial decrease in gradient. It's much more than we um, typically see with any of our other pharmaco uh, pharmacotherapies, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, even disapyramide. You know, we're lucky if we see a five or 10 millimeter mercury uh, decrease. But with Mavicamptin, there was nearly um, uh, surgical levels of uh, gradient reduction. And because of its mechanism of action, again, decreasing contractility, um, uh, a careful eye was kept on um, the effect on ejection fraction. Um, and luckily, um, only a modest um, reduction in ejection fraction with a mean um, re reduction of about 4% in those on Mavicampton um, was needed um, to be associated with this um, degree of gradient reduction. There were a small handful of patients on Mavicampton that had a more substantial reduction in EF um, to an EF less than 50% um, and um, triggered a protocol um, uh, uh, directed um, suspension of uh, study drug. Um, uh, by and large, those were reversible with, um, with holding study drug, and many of them were able to resume. 
And Explore was also um, effective in uh, improving KCCQ scores. So you can see where Explorer um, stacks up um, compared to other medical um, trials in heart failure. Um, you can see that the mean um, improvement in can, uh, was quite substantial um, with Explorer and almost to the level of the, um, the improvement in KCCQ um, that we're seeing in these trials um, using uh, surgical interventions in heart failure. So there are remaining questions, including the long-term safety and the optimal dosing protocols um, with Mavicampton. Um, from the biomarker perspective, um, in obstructive HCM, there was a, uh, there, uh, a significant um, and, again, sustained reduction in NT-proBNP throughout the treatment period. And here's looking um, at the the uh, key results from the MAVERICK trials. This was a, a phase two um, smaller scale trial um, of symptomatic non-obstructive HCM. So there were two groups of patients, um, about 20 patients in each group with symptomatic non-obstructive HCM who were randomized to two different um, dosing uh, schemas of Mavicampton um, compared to 19 and placebo. Um, and you can see that the both groups treated with Mavicampton in blue had um, a significant and sustained reduction in NT-proBNP throughout the 16-week treatment um, course, and then an increase um, in NT-proBNP back to baseline once treatment was stopped. Um, and those on placebo had essentially no change in NT-proBNP. So there are a lot of um, exciting avenues that are um, on the horizon in terms of the uh, um, management of HCM. Um, there's a new kit on the block, Afficampton, um, uh, developed by Cytokinetics. Um, they're in phase two uh, trials, um, Redwood HCM, which will be presented here at HCFSA and the what the top line results being revealed. Um, so that's again with patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM. And Afficampton is also gearing up to have a phase uh, three clinical trial. And there's a val the Valor HCM um, trial is using Mavicampton um, and comparing uh, in patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM eligible for SRT, um, you know, as, um, as kind of a comparison uh, to uh, or an alternative to invasive septal reduction therapy. And here's just um, a look at the timeline. Um, Mavicampton is um, being presented to the FDA with. Um, uh, anticipated review um, early in 2022, um, and Afficampton um, is just completing its phase two uh, study and will soon be launching into phase three. But thank you very much for your attention. Thanks, uh, Dr. So and Abraham's predictably fantastic talks, and thank you so much. Um, I'll be uh, finishing up with a couple of cases. So the clinical scenarios and treatments for HCM have been well outlined tonight. And this is a really beautiful slide. It, it divides the different uh, scenarios and treatments into color-coded and sort of surrounding the HCM in the middle. Non-pharmacologic approaches are sort of around the outside in orange, where you get ICD, CRT, um, heart transplant, LVAD, electrocardioversion, AFib ablation, and surgical myectomy. And then in the green are the pharmacological treatments that are currently available. Um, and that spans you know, anticoagulation for AFib, the normal GDMT for patients with so-called burnt out or reduced EF, heart, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Renolazine is listed here. We didn't talk about that at all tonight, but for patients with angina that's related to microvascular disease and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that can be a very effective treatment. 
and then amionatolol for treatment of arrhythmias and so on and so forth. And then in blue in the middle, and this is a nice way to think about it, are the clinical scenarios. So what are the clinical scenarios that sort of stimulate these approaches? Is it ventricular arrhythmias? Are we more concerned about left ventricular outflow tract obstruction? Are we concerned about microvascular disease and angina? Are we concerned about heart failure symptoms? What are the heart failure symptoms due to, as Dr. Abraham pointed out, is it obstruction? Is it no obstruction? And is there atrial fibrillation, and how do we deal with that? So living with HCM means living with all these different treatments, living with all these different treatment options. And this paper um, is really worth a read uh, by Dr. Zitnick and co. Um, it's a really interesting paper where the authors interviewed 32 HCM patients with semi-structured interviews for about 60 minutes and then just sort of listened to them and went through the different aspects of disease and listened to them and wrote down the, uh, the answers and kind of collated it into um, the good, the bad, the ugly, things that could be learned. I just, I read this paper, t when, as soon as I got it, I read it twice, and I'm going to read it again because it's such a gem. Um, you know, on the, on the negative side, life as it was known came to an end when a person got HCM diagnosis. People were in denial. People felt horrible. They were upset about prescription prices. Um, there was a sadness that others didn't understand. Something's happening to me that's hard. There's this idea of being lazy. And, you know, when you speak to a young, otherwise healthy person who can't comfortably do normal things at work or at home, there's a sense maybe they're not helping their spouse, maybe they're not doing the things they would normally do at work, and it's, they are afraid they're going to be noted, you know, thought of as being lazy. There's this sorrow and anger. Um, and then there's this feeling like, why wasn't this picked up before? I knew I had a heart murmur. What's going on? On the positive side, once they got the diagnosis, people sometimes felt like they had a new lease on life. Oh, that's why I've been having all these symptoms. And then one of the key themes that emerged is this sense of community. Oh, I can meet other people who have this in my family, outside my family. We can come together and help each other. There's a community of people who understand me. Um, HCM as we pointed out, and I, I made a point of this in the beginning of the talk, is, is really more severe in women than in men. And I, I think this is really important to drive home. We don't know really why. This is, again, work from the SHARE registry. And it's, it's clear, though, that um, you know, in women, there's more sarcomere mutations frequently seen. There are more septal reduction therapies. There's more heart failure. And there's increased risk of death. There are a lot of possible explanations for this. Some of them are physiologic. It could be that there are mechanisms of hypertrophy for sporadic HCM in men that occur that uh, lead more non-sarcomeric HCM to be diagnosed in men and therefore a more sort of benign form of the disease. It could also be that it's just being missed and overlooked. And I think it's really important to keep an eye out for this. So what causes delayed diagnosis? Well, here's some of the hypotheses. Um, maybe recognition of heart failure symptoms in women are delayed. Um, it may be that their uh, HCM progresses more rapidly in women than it does in men. Early symptoms of angina, atypical chest pain, and dyspnea and fatigue may be misinterpreted, ignored, or inappropriately attributed to other causes. We've certainly seen this happen. Um, and women may be less likely to seek out the medical diagnosis and care for early symptoms because they're busy taking care of others. Um, these are common themes that we've seen over and over. 
So what about the guidelines? How do we think about individualizing care? I've just spent some time saying it's different for different types of individuals, and there's a lot of different ways we could look at that. I focused on the male-female component, but there's other ways we could look at it too. So how do you individualize care? Well, it's one of the highlights of the current guidelines that shared decision-making is deeply incorporated into everything that we do. Gone are the days when you say to your patient, you may not do XYZ exercise or sports. You may not up and and you will you should go and have surgery. You know, that's the treatment for you. We are now in the time where we you know talk to our patients and find out how is the experience, what should we do. There are some ways to think about this. The paper again that I talked about before, the Zitnik paper, you know, really kind of highlights how the patients look at us. You know, they're asking us, hey, can you communicate with my other doctors? Um, is there a behavioral health specialist that I can connect with? Can you educate my primary care doctor? How often should I see my EP doctor, and are you working with them? And is this an HCM center? And I'm not necessarily really talking about so-called centers of excellence, which are, which are great. It's an HCMA designation. But there are a lot of places that have expertise in HCM with uh, physicians and nurse practitioners, geneticists, and so on. Um, and is this a place that has experience with that? So let me get to the case studies. Um, this is a 48-year-old female who I saw in my office who presented with LVH, diabetes, and postural orthostasis. She had had some fainting. She had some palpitations, anxiety, and chest pains, just like I spoke about before. And the chest pains were angina-like. She was taking a tenol, aspirin, and an antidepressant. She had a relatively low blood pressure. She had a whopping murmur that increased from, uh, from squatting to standing. Um, and she had no external signs of uh, decompensated heart failure, volume overload. So her mother had had cardiomyopathy and died suddenly. No one knew what type. She didn't know what type. Her brother had been found dead at age 46 years. And at age 31 years, uh, her nephew had had a history of syncope that started when he was 16 years old. This was her EKG. As Dr. Abraham pointed out, there's not a tremendous amount of LVH here. There is left axis deviation, left atrial enlargement. There's some T-wave inversion anteriorly. And there are abnormal Q waves um, and QRS prolongation. This is not totally atypical for an HCM EKG. And here are her uh, echocardiographic images. And um, those of you who uh, are echocardiographers in the audience will note that the basal portion of the interventricular septum, where there's SAM, uh, is a little bit brighter, and that'll give you a clue as to what the ultimate management was with this patient. You can see in the color Doppler to the right-hand side how there's significant mitral regurgitation, systolic anti-motion, and there is um, aliasing uh, below the aortic valve. So this was her uh, LVOT gradient. It was about 80, and that was um, during Valsalva. Uh, we exercised her um, for a number of reasons. She had an abnormal blood pressure response, and she had some actually leg discomfort. So in thinking through what to do with this patient, we go through this kind of process. You know, how do we get to an agreement that we reach together? How do we make sure the patient knows what we want them to know? These are long visits, and frequently more than one visit, and frequently followed by a phone call with family members. It takes a lot of discussion to figure out what you want to do. But despite medication initiation, and uh, she had progressive dyspnea with exertion, 
And ultimately, she did undergo an alcohol septal ablation, which was um, appropriate in this case, and she had a good response and has since left my practice. She moved down south. But from what I understand, she's doing well. She also elected to undergo an ICD implantation because of her family history of sudden cardiac death. Second case, uh, TJ is a 20-year-old man. Um, he has no family history, just presents with episodes of chest pain and dyspnea on exertion, just going up one flight of steps, otherwise very healthy young man. This is his EKG, which is uh, significantly uh, notable for very severe left ventricular hypertrophy and very deep T-wave inversions and actually sort of ischemic-looking ST segments. This is a very remarkable EKG for a 20-year-old. Exercise for seven minutes, had some mild systolic anterior motion, but no gradient, um, and had some chest pain during that exercise of seven minutes. And this is his echocardiogram. This is at age 20. So very, very severe concentric hypertrophy, a little bit worse than the septum, but really overall um, very severe hypertrophy. Um, and it actually extends into the right ventricle. You can sort of get a sense of that on these images. And there's, we know that when hypertrophy extends into the right ventricle and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that portends a more severe clinical course. So this is the MRI, and I'll just take a second to point out the image on the right. We haven't talked much about late gadolinium enhancement. Um, I tell the fellows, um, why late? Because after about 10 minutes, the gadolinium is still hanging out where there are no more heart muscle cells, or the heart muscle cells have been separated from one another. They don't get intra, uh, the gadolinium doesn't get into the cells. And so if you hang out for a little bit before you take the picture, it should wash out from areas where there's tightly packed cells, and it'll hang around in areas where the cells are separated or where it's been replaced by collagen. And when you see dense late gadolinium enhancement, it means that there's dense scar usually in HCM. And in this case, the anterior wall is almost completely replaced by scar at the age of 20. Patient did undergo genotyping and in this case had one of the more rare uh, genetic variants, which is a tropomyosin 1 variant. Remember the slide that Dr. Ho showed of the frequency of genetic diagnosis in the share registry. That was one of the more rare uh, genes. And We've actually spent a good amount of time um, uh, sort of studying this patient and her family. I'll tell you that, um, and his, sorry, his family, I'll tell you that his mother came in uh, to see me after this, when, after this happened, and it turned out she'd been getting treated for, she'd been getting treated for hypertensive LVH. She did have hypertension. She had about a 1.6 centimeter ventricle, but she also had elevated JVP and heart failure, and actually she was presenting as a sort of restrictive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with biventricular severe diastolic dysfunction, severe by atrial enlargement, has the same mutation, but had been treated as a hypertensive cardiomyopathy. Interestingly, when I spoke with her, she had a diagnosis of hypertension, but really had never had sustained blood pressure really had never had sustained blood pressures much over 145 or 150 systolic and over, over 95 diastolic. So really not enough to give you high, severe hypertrophy like that. Uh, this patient, um, I'm still following. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that I've been able to do for the angina and limited uh, exercise capacity. Uh, but this patient did undergo an ICD for treatment of the left ventricular, severe left ventricular hypertrophy and scar burden. Thank you, everybody, for your attention. This activity is accredited by the Heart Failure Society of America.
This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BQR 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.